So, Mark. Yeah? The lead of this movie, the BFG himself, Benjamin Franklin Gates, shares a family tradition of having people be named for historical figures, like his father, Patrick Henry Gates, and his grandfather, John Adams Gates. (laughs) So my question is, if you had to name your child entirely after a historical figure, what would you go with? Well, my family actually does have a history of this. I was talking to my grandma at her house, who has some- Are you talking about the fact that you were probably named after stuntman Mark Schaefer, who appears in this movie? Or there's also someone named David Schaefer, and I think he's the husband of Anna Wintour. Oh my. (laughs) Rachel is aghast. (laughs) I I just need to stop. I was watching last week's movie, 500 Days of Summer, and Mark Schaefer, the stuntman, was credited, and I was like, I have to know everything. And I pulled up his IMDb page, and he is also in this movie. Mark Schaefer is everywhere. He sounds like an actual good stuntman, I guess. Yeah, he's in at least one Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Hmm. I thought being a stuntman would be cool as a kid, and then I realized that I have an injury-prone lifestyle that probably shouldn't add stunts to it. It feels like maybe not the best avenue for you. Yeah. Given, like, your what you've talked about on this show about your athletic history, like, your athletic skills were more in memorizing Bible verses than in shooting basketballs into hoops. I was so good at memorizing the Bible verses for upward basketball. Basketball too. It's a chain. Did you get the little colored stars? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like green was for memorizing Bible verses, so I mostly had those. And then I think yellow was like teamwork for people who were good at passing the ball, which I think I had a couple of those because <laughs> I tried to get rid of it as soon as possible. Things like that. My dad, I only did upward basketball for one season. My dad had been really, really into basketball when he was in high school and college. And so he coached my team and quickly became horrified at the number of prayers that were required in order to play upward basketball. And, you know, he is a practicing Christian and still felt like there was far too much emphasis on the praying. And so we only did it for one season, but at the end of each game, the coach would assign stars. And in my league of upward, the white star was like a really, really big deal. And you got a certificate and it was basically for like the most Christian player on the team or something. And my dad made a point of making sure it was a different person on the team every week after every game so that Ultimately, everybody got one white star, which looking back is a good way to do it. But then I remember being at a game and this one girl had like four or five white stars sewn onto her basketball (laughs) uniform. And then it turned out she was the daughter of the coach of that team who just kept awarding his own daughter most Christian player after every game. That's a little sus, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) the league probably should have stepped in there the other thing i remember is that at like the final celebration of like you finished upward basketball season yay they gathered us all in a room and they were basically like 
We're all going to pray together and we're going to pray something out loud and then you'll repeat it in your heart. And the prayer was something along the lines of like, Jesus, I want to establish a relationship with you or something like basically the prayer to be saved. This was a Baptist basketball league. And I remember sitting there being like eight years old or nine years old and hearing them and being like, I am not going to pray this in my heart. And I think in my little eight-year-old brain, I was like, dear God, I feel like we already have an okay relationship. (laughs) I also had my dad coaching my team. And being benched by your dad has a bit of extra sting. But he was very competitive. (laughs) And he did not like having his worst player out on the... I almost said field. And I think that proves why I should have been benched a lot. Everyone had to play... It's not that you were worthless on the court. It's that you were too needed... On the Bible study. <laughs> yeah. They I couldn't was... afford to lose you there. <laughs> couldn't get injured and prevent me from reading the Bible. Oh, wait. Mark, question. Yes. In your yes. upward basketball league, did they keep score at the games? Because mine actively did not, because it might encourage jealousy in our hearts if we knew, (laughs) or like either jealousy or pride, if we either knew the other team was beating us, or we knew we were beating the other team. So they made a point of not keeping score at our games, and then there was a scandal when it turned out that some coaches were keeping score to themselves and then telling their teams after the games what the score was. That is even more Baptist than my Baptist basketball league because they did keep score. But you also had to do the whole handshake at the end and make sure everyone knows that they're friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Obviously. But yeah, I remember doing the handshake at the end at one point and this girl was crying and was so upset that they'd lost. And I was like, how did you know that you lost? They aren't allowed to keep score. And like, we're all eight years old. No one really has a sense of what's going on here. Were you the whistleblower, Rachel? Did you blow the top off the whole coaches keeping score scandal? Um, I did not, if we're being totally honest, I do not know, but I would not be surprised if my mom was involved. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, upward. Yeah. Anyway, I think we were talking about names. So, Mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were saying that your family has a history of BFG-style names. It is true. Everyone in my family is named after someone in some way, but back in the late 1800s, which apparently my grandmother still has records of, one of my great-grandfathers was named Thomas Jefferson Schaefer, son of George Washington Schaefer, and husband of Cinderella Schaefer, which is by far the best of all of those names. (laughs) Yes, Cinderella Schaefer is great. And this was back in the 1800s, before Cinderella was, like, a Disney princess, and they were probably reading the German version, where birds pecked out her sister's eyes. Yeah. And, like, this historical naming thing was a thing in the 19th century. Like, just naming somebody after a famous historical person. But it's something we've gotten away from. And I don't know if we should bring it back, because every historical person did something bad. But I did think about what I would choose. Yeah, so what would you choose? I think that we need to encourage women in STEM. And I think Marie Curie actually sounds like a nice name for a child. Marie Curie Schaefer. Okay, sure. I mean, hopefully that does not lead them to a life of dealing with radioactive material without any sort of protection. But she was pretty cool. 
It's just what makes them glow. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of people did seem to glow in the early 1900s. I listened to a podcast about how much people loved radiation and often were dying of it. And that's a thing we should probably talk about more, that you could just buy irradiated items to put in your water off of a Sears catalog in the 1920s. And then people were like, this will help me live forever as their hair is falling out and they have like sores on their face. That's the price you pay for immortality. Like, you ever see those movies with, like, the crazy old guy? They always look like that. But they're alive. I will say, the curse of immortality but continued aging is something that always terrified me in fiction. Yeah, it's super creepy. Anyway, what would you name... I guess, who would you name your child after? So, I think that my move probably... I'm aware that... (laughs) Given my last name... I could make my kid be FDR without too much difficulty. Franklin Delano Redmond. Franklin Delano Redmond. Actually, uh, Mark, I don't know if you already knew this, but I already knew that this would be Will's answer because he has brought this up multiple times before. Look, I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I'm just saying I'm aware that I could do it. (laughs) It's an option that will continue to hopefully just be an option. And, like, you can kind of cover it up, like, you use a different D middle name. You do, like, Franklin David or something like that. And then you get those weird conversations where people are, like, putting it together on their own, and they're like, did did he name his kid FDR? But you can't be 100% sure. You could also, if you have a girl, you could do, like, Francine Dorothy Redman, and then the short name for Francine is Frankie. So you could still have a kid named Frankie. Actually, one time recently, Will and I were hanging out with some other friends who are also vaccinated. And the reason I know that he thinks a lot about FDR is he brought this up. And he also said if he had a daughter, he would consider naming her Rosie, short for Roosevelt Redmond. (laughs) Absolutely. Because that was also a thing in the 19th century. Like, people would name their kids, like, the first names of famous people's last names. That's how you wind up with, like, all those people named, like, Jefferson or Washington or whatever. Like, I'm just saying, Roosevelt Redmond kind of works. To be fair, this came up because I know a family with three daughters whose names are McKinley, Kennedy, and Reagan. I think we should go back all the way to the Puritan days and start naming our children Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery or The Lord is Thy Shepherd and Thou Shalt Not Want. These are actual names that Puritans would give their children. Or mean ones? Those are my favorite. When they're like, you are nothing. You are dust. You are sinner in the Lord's eye. Johnson. Those are always good. What about you? What what historical figure would you name your child after? Uh, So I have two answers. My first one is Diana Spencer, just because I think that those names go really well with any given last name. Sure. My other option is, and this is assuming a world where I have multiple children, my first child. (laughs) I just, when he's like, I have multiple children, I'm like, wait, so we have Liesl and Brigitte and (laughs) No, um, so my first child will be named Laura Dern, and all other children will be named after roles that Laura Dern has played. Who will be, what is Admiral Haldo? 
Ah, uh, that's Vice Admiral Holdo. <laughs> Vice Admiral so Holdo, Rach. the dignity of the office. Vice Admiral Holdo. It's Star Wars. She must have a first name. Everyone has a everyone has a full name and extensive backstory in Star Wars. I don't know. I think naming your child Vice Admiral as their actual first name sounds good. Um, according to Wikipedia, Vice Admiral Holdo's first name is Amelin. That is not nearly as bad as some Star Wars names. Um, how dare you impugn the honor of our good man, Salacious Crumb. <laughs> Kit Fisto. <laughs> Kit Fisto is a, is a cool dude. <laughs> yeah, but his name is Kit Fisto. You know who else is cool? Droopy McCool, a member of the Max Rebo band. <laughs> uh, Francis Perkins would also be a good name for a child. That's a really good name for a child. As is Droopy McCool. It's no Droopy McCool. And it's no Benjamin Franklin Gates, the lead of the movie we are discussing today. Welcome to We Love the Love. You're talking about the BFG. A Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, I'm gay, and we are not talking about Steven Spielberg's The BFG. Honestly, thank goodness. I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are celebrating Independence Day by cracking open the book to talk about the romances of National Treasure Book of Secrets. We're doing it, folks. We're cracking open the Book of Secrets today. By the time this episode ends, we will know what's on page 47. I mean, unfortunately, we won't. Release National Treasure 3 immediately. I have to know. This movie came out, like, right when I was, like, starting to follow film production on, like, the most basic level, by which I mean I, like, paid attention to news about franchise movies I was into. And I remember reading the story on some, like, weird fan website that Disney had registered the domain names for National Treasure 3 and 4. And I was like, heck yes, we are rolling! And then, of course, nothing What do you think is on page 47, Will? I must know. The thing is, like, what I'm wondering is, like, is it related to another treasure or not? Because on the one level, I'm like, there has to be a finite number of large buried treasures in the United States. (laughs) You would think, but I think they could find another one. No, I'm wondering if it isn't, like, a conspiracy-ish kind of thing. Like, it's more of just, like, a historical mystery, or even, like, find this artifact, but not find this big pile of gold, which is what they did two movies in a row. I was thinking they would find the treasure of Atlantis under the Jefferson Memorial, the closest to water of all of the monuments I could think of. Well, that's, I'm trying to think if Jefferson was once underwater, because, like, where the Lincoln Memorial is used to be part of the Potomac River, and they, like, filled in the river there to build that land. Ooh. That's not a terrible idea. There's something to There's that. There's something to that. Well, they've done New York and D.C., so I feel like maybe they should do Boston, because a lot of Boston is built on top of old land. They do go to Boston in the first one. Oh, they do? Or maybe, I think Sean Bean goes to Boston, but Nicolas Cage doesn't. Yeah, like, yeah, because they trick him to go to the Old North Church instead of Trinity Church in New York. I remember a lot more oh, about well, that now, movie. Now as I'm thinking realized. about like, D.C. and the Lincoln Memorial... What I want is a National Treasure Night at the Museum crossover. I want Benjamin Franklin Gates to meet Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin Gates has to break into the Smithsonian to steal an artifact, only to be foiled by Ben Stiller. 
I, I would watch this. I think the tones are close enough that it could work. Speaking of tone, I did not remember that this movie lets him go full cage. Maybe not. <laughs> he is fully uncaged in this he movie. Is maybe not full cage, but he has his moments where he is unleashing it, unlike anything in the first movie. Most notably, the scene in Buckingham Palace when he's shouting at the security guards. I love it. It really elevates this movie to a whole level of unhinged beyond just the lost city of gold is buried under Mount Rushmore. <laughs> As I was watching this movie, I was alternately shouting out, this rules and this is the dumbest movie. It and I stand both. by both of those assessments. It fully is both. And I like that they don't even address the fact that the Black Hills of South Dakota are very, very far away from the ancient Mayan territory or even the Aztecs. And they never really make it clear who it is. I guess the Olmecs. but Who are also like northern Mexico. Right. It is a long way away from them, with many people in between that they would have to either trade with or fight, I guess? Mark, I'm a little concerned here because you seem to be suggesting that the history behind this movie doesn't entirely hold up. I... (laughs) There is a lot more just wrong in this movie than I had realized the first time I watched it. (laughs) It is such absolute nonsense. Like, the Resolute desk is definitely not the desk that Queen Elizabeth uses in Buckingham Palace. I mean, forget that. Like, (laughs) frankly, I don't know if Queen Victoria has any living heirs. Um, That feels like the kind of thing that would be a mystery. But (laughs) if she does, they should sue this movie for defamation. Yeah, the British? (laughs) Because it goes out of its way to repeatedly be like, Queen Victoria wanted the South to win the war to weaken the United States. Like, first of all, to weaken what? The U.S. wasn't a world power. Also, Victoria is the primary reason Britain didn't recognize the South, because she was anti-slavery. The British were definitely like, let's wait and see, and not pro either side. But I do think it's hilarious that this movie is just full-on Victoria was a supporter of slavery. With, like, secret correspondence with Albert Pike and all that. Imagine if the royal family tried to sue Disney for defamation of character. I I would love that. Also, she does have descendants. I I couldn't tell if you were joking if she had descendants, to be honest, because it took me a second to remember that the entire royal family is descended from Victoria. Yes, obviously I am aware of that. It just took me a second to realize. uh, I'm a little dumb sometimes. Anyway, uh, to talk about National Treasure Book of Secrets, we are joined by our good friend Rachel, who was annoyed at the runtime of our original National Treasure episode. (laughs) Don't worry, we are almost at it already. (laughs) We have almost hit it. Yeah, I just, so, to give the listeners a little bit of context, now that I am a six-time guest, and I- Is that true? That I'm a six-time guest? Because- there was one episode where we were joined by Blachel. I was there in the beginning, and then I got angry and left, and Blachel came on. Okay. But, I mean, if you count my um Princess Diaries voice note that I sent you about the final Princess Diaries book, this could arguably be my seventh episode. Anyway, I just know the Five Timers Club is a big thing in SNL, and I know that We Love the Love is much more exclusive than SNL, so you have to get to six times to really be in the club but now that i am in the six timers club i assume that i will be receiving a customized smoking jacket just like 
other uh, SNL guests receive when they get to the Five Timers Club. Uh, first, you just have to let us know your preferred pack of smokes because we get it branded with that, too. Yeah, I was about to oh, say, okay. I'll, we I'll don't actually give the smoking jacket. We just give you a bunch of cigarettes, <laughs> loose <laughs> cigarettes in a plastic shopping bag. Is this a pro-smoking podcast? <laughs> Apparently it is now. Anyway, um, guests may not realize this, given that I am such a uh, prolific member of the We Love the Love family, but I, like, knew Will kind of from college. I was not really friends with Mark and Will until almost a ye- more than a year into the podcast's run. But I listened to the podcast a lot because in the early days of the podcast, Will kept posting on his Facebook telling everyone to listen to his podcast and I needed to find a new podcast to put me to sleep because The Axe Files by David Axelrod was just too exciting a podcast for me. So I couldn't fall asleep when I was listening to it. So I started listening to We Love the Love and then realized I was not going to be able to fall asleep to it, but it was a really good running podcast. So just picture, if you will, I was training for a marathon. At the time, I was in the southeastern United States, very hot, very humid, have to go do a track workout, which is going to be so intense. And I see a new episode of We Love the Love has come out on National Treasure, a movie that I treasured growing up. And I thought, great. As did the nation. This will help pull me through my track workout. And I get like halfway through the workout and the episode is over. And I felt so cheated. And I was just like, how the heck am I supposed to finish this workout? And to be fair, this podcast before I came along and shattered records with the Titanic episode, much like the iceberg shattered the actual Titanic. This podcast used to pride itself on being less than an hour. In fact, some rando left a review on the We Love the Love Apple podcast page, louding the fact that this podcast only lasted 40 minutes on average. That rando had some sort of name like Will Redmond or something like that. I assume it's someone named after the podcast host because what podcast host would leave a review on their own podcast, praising the length of the podcast, which they themselves then control. Anyway, I do not like short podcasts. There are podcasts that I really liked. The first one that comes to mind is Hello from the Magic Tavern that I really enjoyed but stopped listening to because they were too short of episodes for me. And I have never stopped feeling betrayed by the length of the National Treasure at the time Heart of Podness episode. And so when it was announced that We Love the Love would be doing a National Treasure 2 episode, I immediately started campaigning to be allowed to be a guest so that I could ensure that the wrong was righted and also that no other We Love the Love fans would have to feel the betrayal that I felt that hot, hot, July 2018 day when I barely staggered through the end of my track workout because I didn't have any Nicolas Cage commentary to get me through that last part. So so your plan now today is to filibuster your way to an acceptable length. It's working so far. You can't argue with results. Anyway, so Book of Secrets. I remember eagerly anticipating this. Mark, did you see Book of Secrets in theaters? I did you crack the book? Believe I did i saw national treasure the original like 20 times as a kid because they played it on every school trip 
because it is oh yeah that was a classic bus movie just historical enough and fun enough for children to watch on a school bus so i think i would have seen it but i don't remember seeing it in theaters what about you Oh, I absolutely saw it in theaters. My dad took us to see it. I am sure this will shock you both. Uh, As a child, I was really into Benjamin Franklin Gates. (laughs) Okay, like, what does that mean? (laughs) This is a guy who appeared in two movies. So here's the thing. I, these movies came out and I was watching them primarily when I was between the ages of what, like, 9 and 12 or so, which is also the age that people start really pushing you about who your celebrity crush is. And (laughs) Riley, in my opinion, was much cuter than Ben, but Ben had the dazzling historical knowledge. And (laughs) re-watching it, I'm like, Riley has tech knowledge, but at the time as a child, you know, you're seeing... In a lot of media, people just hacking into all the... Like, I was not impressed by what Riley was able to do. But Ben Gates just had this encyclopedic knowledge of American history. And I found that really attractive for some reason. So when people would ask me who my celebrity crush was as a little kid, I would sometimes say Nicolas Cage. Because he had played Ben Gates and I'd never seen him in anything else. But I just loved the way that he could talk about history i am a little terrified of you right now rachel (laughs) (laughs) this is a fantastic revelation but think about it's it's so cool he's so smart and he can put his knowledge into practice and he solves puzzles and that's fun and he rides philadelphia area public transportation which i was also into as a kid because my family spent a semester in philadelphia and i got really into public transportation like he had it was the whole package i don't know what to say (laughs) riley is very attractive riley is much and even as a child i recognize riley was the more attractive one but when it comes down to it looks fade And the ability to pontificate on archaic and unimportant points of American history is forever. I gotta say, Riley cracking open the iPod and then sticking it on the bathroom (laughs) stall is a moment that is now seared into my brain of a perfect encapsulation of tech at this time. I was howling through that whole sequence as he, like, unpacks, like, an entire, like server farm into that (laughs) toilet in Buckingham Palace. And, like, I get that, like, it looks like he snuck some stuff in the iPod, but when they definitely went through a metal detector, nobody thought anything of what must have looked like a bomb-making kit in his backpack. Didn't they, like, distract the guards at that point or something? I think Ben and Abigail are already, like, yelling at each other as they're going through... So maybe the guards didn't well, know he's this. already set up by then because oh, he's right. talking to Ben in the earpiece. Yeah, we don't ever see him go through a metal detector because they walk up to the gates of Buckingham Palace and say, oh, we have a meeting with the curator. And they're like, oh, sure, come on in. There's a lot more tourists in Buckingham Palace that are actually allowed in Buckingham Palace in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely saw this movie in theaters in 2007. I was also hugely international treasure because I liked U.S. history. Nerds. So... The release of a new national treasure was a big deal. 
I don't know exactly like what day I saw it, but it opened on December 21st, and I definitely saw it over the Christmas break, in part because I know my family also made plans to go visit Mount Vernon to take the National Treasure tour that they had set up there, where they were like touring like locations at Mount Vernon used in the movie, and they'd like talk about it being shot there. Except then we got there, and nobody there knew what we were talking about. <laughs> what? <laughs> and we were like, it's on your website. And they were like, we've never heard of it. And we're like, what are you talking about? Uh, that, I would be heartbroken. That is honestly so funny, though. Because imagine being the staff member that was never told that they were running a national treasure tour of Mount Vernon. And someone comes up and asks about it. Like, imagine just being some low-paid summer worker who's there every day sweating, dealing with annoyed people because they keep expecting to see the behind the scenes national treasure tour and the company never told them about it according to mount vernon's website they continued to run that tour for like three more years i never went on it i've never heard of a place not no like staff members not having any knowledge of a tour that they are supposedly running yeah they were just like no idea what you're talking about So then we spent the rest of the day pointing out different bathroom-related stuff to my grandma. Like, oh, look, that's a chamber pot. People would poop in that. (laughs) And then my grandma would be like, why are you talking about that? And, you know, that could keep us entertained for a while. Uh, This movie was successful also, right? To get off poop and back onto National Treasure. It clearly has a bigger budget. This one was shot for like $130 The first one was like $100. And I do think you see that on screen sometimes. Not always for the best, but, like, they do a ton of location shooting around the country, around the world. A drone. They have the big car chase in London. Like, they're they're spending money. But it did make more money than the first one. It made $219 million in North America, $457 in total worldwide. So, like, the movie was a hit. They really were, like, gonna go and make a third one. They registered those domain names. But first, they had the issue of these scripts kind of take a while to figure out, even when they are as messy as this one. Because they're like, all right, you gotta figure out, like... A lot of clues, like, put together a puzzle for it. That was the answer they would give for a while about why it was taking so long. The other issue is that both director John Turtletaub and producer Jerry Bruckheimer had a falling out with Disney over making bad movies in the early 2010s. The big thing is that John Turtletaub and Jerry Bruckheimer and Nicolas Cage made the live-action Sorcerer's Apprentice, which I have not seen and neither did anybody else. That was a big flop that kind of soured Disney on working with the three of them. On top of that, here is Jerry Bruckheimer's run with Disney in the early 2010s. And he had been working with Disney since the 90s when they had touched on pictures and he was making stuff with them like The Rock. There's a movie you're about to say that I am so excited to hear. (laughs) His contract ends in the 2010s. Disney declines to renew the contract after he makes a run that goes G-Force. Yeah, G-Force! Persia. Oh. The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And The Lone Ranger. Oh, God, I didn't realize he did two racist movies back-to-back. Just, like, a string of very expensive commercial failures. And Disney's like, yeah, no more. And also included in those commercial failures is a movie about gerbils that work for the FBI. I think they're hamsters, Will. Or I think they're actually guinea yeah, pigs. Yeah, because G-Force. Guinea pigs. Do you know about G-Force, Rachel? I 
have not learned anything new from what you all have said. And if you said anything else about it, I would learn something new. Here are the guinea pigs. The guinea pigs who work for the FBI are played by Sam Rockwell, Tracy Morgan, Penelope Cruz, and John Favreau. I, I like kind of want to watch it, but I think it would be so painful and not fun. But it's look, we should probably do it. It's so fascinating to think about. So they have all these like high profile failures. Uh, Bruckheimer in particular, Turtle Tob in his own way. So the whole thing kind of stalls. Scripts were written for National Treasure Three, like they exist, but there kind of hadn't been news for a long time. By like 2017. John Turtletaub and Jerry Bruckheimer kept saying, like, we want to do it, but Disney doesn't want to do it. And then in 2020, after the box office success of Bad Boys for Life, which is also a Jerry Bruckheimer production, Bruckheimer announced that they had hired the screenwriter of Bad Boys for Life to write National Treasure 3, and Disney was on board. (gasps) So that's now in development. Are you serious? I didn't know. I'm serious. Oh, yeah. That's in development. They also are developing a, like, Disney Plus series about, like, a kid who may or may not be mentored by the BFG. And that is being written by the Wibberleys, which is how this movie's screenwriters are credited. It's just the Wibberleys. That feels like a TV show you could get Nick Cage to do because he'll be offered an ungodly amount of money for a little bit of screen time. And that is his go-to move. Look, he needs money for dinosaur bones, Mark. What do you want? <laughs> uh, the best celebrity losing all their money story out there. Uh, but yeah, so National Treasure 3, theoretically happening. We're maybe going to get it. I think it might. I think it's possible. These movies have I a cultural legacy. so overjoyed. Yeah, they're good. It's not like the movie, well, not according to the critics, <laughs> But it's not like these movies have okay, disappeared. They're not good. <laughs> People still talk about National Treasure a lot, so it's not faded enough. We're all trying to find out what's on page 47, Mark. The culture has been demanding to know. Theory. I, I know enough people that are demanding to know. Rachel, what is your theory? My theory. Okay, so page 47 at the end of the movie, Ben says it's potentially life-changing and given the franchise which is all about national treasures what if is it barack obama it's elvis it's (laughs) the location of elvis he's still alive it's a drawing of alan olda like a caricaturist yeah and Ben Gates is like, it's possibly life-changing because who among us has not had their life changed by MASH? It's Alan Alda's caricature from Sardis, and it was stolen by Kermit the Frog in an attempt to <laughs> get on Broadway. Kermit and uh, anyway, I think page 47. It's a great theory. That is a good theory. I think page 47 is another map because it has to, well, a cipher clue that leads to a map as all of these movies start that tells you that there's a map on the back of Abe Lincoln's hat on the Lincoln Memorial. (laughs) Does he wear a hat? He does not wear a hat in that statue, does he? He does not. Never mind. Uh, While we're talking about the Wibberleys, um, the married couple, Cormac and Marianne, I should mention, they are set to write the TV series for Disney+. Plus. They also have not written a movie 
since G-Force. So <laughs> G-Force really is the devil in this whole scenario. Honestly, it feels like people should have been able to look at this and say, this is not going to be a career maker for me. I, who greenlit this movie? <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer and Disney. Wow. That just, it does not sound like a movie that will succeed. There's nothing about it that sounds like it would succeed. What are you talking about? The guinea pigs work for the FBI. Oh, God. Well, I'm still excited about the show. Speaking of movies where uh, talking animals interact with humans, this movie opened the same weekend as Alvin and the Chipmunks. <sighs> I can't believe that that movie did so the well. The top five, December 21st, 2007. Number one, National Treasure Book of Secrets. $44 million. Nice big holiday opening. Number two, Will Smith and I Am Legend. Number three, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Number four, Charlie Wilson's War, somehow. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's just the power of Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts, I guess. Number five, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. What a weird mixed bag of a top five. Yep. Sweeney Todd famously had, like, a terrible cinema score. I don't know what it was because they didn't advertise it as a musical. So all these people showed up expecting to see, like, Tim Burton's latest twisted collaboration with Johnny Depp. And then it starts with, there's a hole in the world like a great black pit. <laughs> were National Treasure and Alvin and the Chipmunks the only new releases? Or were the others new that week and also? I think I Am Legend maybe was not a new release, but the others were. And like for family stuff, like Enchanted is still hanging in there. Like there's some other stuff to go see with your family if you've already seen National Treasure enough times. Uh, Book of Secrets. A movie. <laughs> I just keep remembering everything that happens in it, and I get so thrown off. Yeah, we should discuss, and I'll obviously have a lot of history to talk about, too. Um, just some some quick notes on the reception of this movie. It was fairly poorly reviewed by critics, who pointed out that it doesn't make a lick of sense, and it's pretty similar to the first one. And what? <laughs> right, to which I say, correct, <laughs> and that's what I was looking for. <laughs> Nicolas Cage and John Voight were both nominated for Worst Actor at the Razzies in combination with a bunch of other movies they did that year. Voight was nominated for Supporting Actor, Cage for Actor. They both lost to Eddie Murphy for Norbit. Um, Diane Kruger was nominated for Choice Movie Actress colon Action Adventure at the Teen Choice Awards and lost to Rachel Bilson in Jumper. And it was nominated for Best Movie at the MTV Movie Awards alongside Superbad, Juno, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, and I Am Legend, and they all lost to Transformers. Oh my god. I have to say- What a list of movies. I think Diane Kruger is worthy of a most improved award between the two movies. She's- I was about to say she's given more to do. I don't know if that's true. She is not good, but she is definitely better than she was in the original. I think she's struggling with the English, with the American accent a lot more in this one. She is, but I think maybe it's she decided to sacrifice accent work to try and act better. I do think she has a slightly more coherent arc in this one. That is true. It helps that she has actual emotions in that they are fighting. All right, obviously we could talk about, we could talk about history with this all day. Um, I'd like to make a note real quickly to say that the phrase, his name is Mudd, predates the U.S. Civil War, and also Samuel Mudd was guilty, and his pardon had nothing to do with whether or not he was involved in the plot to kill Lincoln. His pardon was for treating a, like, massive malaria outbreak at the place where he was imprisoned. I mean, terrible person, but at least that's nice. Yeah, 
But no, he definitely knew about the assassination. He definitely hid Booth from the federal marshals while Booth was on the run. Um, let's not cave into the Mud family, which still exists and has spent the last 150 years trying to whitewash their family history and make it look like he was just a good doctor helping out a guy who had hurt his leg when he jumped down from a balcony after murdering the president. Do you think the Mud family paid off the Wibberleys? I would believe it. Why do people care so much? That's what I kept thinking the whole time. I was like, I get, I'd be kind of sad, but at the same time, are you really willing to die for your family legacy when you could just make a better one by apologizing? I get it more for the Gates crew because, like, if you keep the first movie in mind, they have been laughing stocks in the historical community for generations. Yeah. And, like, they finally salvaged their name at the end of the first movie. And then I think, like, months later. I think it's three years people later, are like, according to the Wikipedia summary. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, not that long after, people are like, JK. Fine, you're not crackpots, you just murdered Lincoln. I just, everyone cares so much about their family history in this movie, and it just doesn't matter. Um, Will, as a history teacher, could you please assess for us a claim that was made that I found kind of interesting, but am not sure of the truth of, that Booth really was just a pawn in a much larger conspiracy? No, Booth was the mastermind of a conspiracy. Okay, cool. That's what I thought. But at one point in the movie, it talks about how he was just being used for much greater purposes. And I was like, hmm, I'm not an American history expert. Like, this feels like it's not true, but I don't know. But so he he really was the lead bad guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I think that what the movie is getting at there is, you know, the movie uses the Knights of the Golden Circle as this malevolent secret society. And so I think it's trying to suggest that like Booth was a pawn of the circle to restart the war or something. It is true that in assassinating Lincoln, Booth's hope was that it would regalvanize the Southern war effort. Um, this movie erroneously states that the Civil War had ended by the time of the assassination. Richmond had fallen, Lee had surrendered, there were still rebel armies in the field. And Booth was hoping to like get everybody like, yeah, we're gonna come back and win this thing when Lincoln was gone. But it was his idea. He was acting as the leader of this conspiracy, which also intended to kill Ulysses Grant and uh, Secretary of State William Seward, Vice President Andrew Johnson. The Knights of the Golden Circle had nothing to do with it. They actually didn't exist by that point. They had ceased to exist in 1863. They actually had been involved in a plot in 1861 to kidnap Abraham Lincoln to stop him from becoming president. But they had nothing to do with the assassination. Was that the assassination attempt that was foiled by the Pinkertons before they decided to just murder Union strikers? Yes, <laughs> in Baltimore in 1861. Yes. Um, well, the wild thing about it is that, like, the Knights of the Golden Circle, like, openly included a lot of, like, leading political figures in the United States, like, members of James Buchanan's cabinet, including, like, his Secretary of War, who, in the winter of 1860, 1861, moved a bunch of, like, weapons and ammunition to bases in the South as secession was taking place so that then they would have access to all that stuff. Yikes. So also given everything you've been saying, it sounds like getting a lot more money at the point where Lincoln was assassinated, which is the point that the movie wants us to think the Confederacy 
is trying to find Cibola, like that would not have actually caused them to win. It was too late at that point. Their government's on the run. Their largest army had surrendered. The U.S. army was spread throughout the South. Like if they had gotten Cibola in 1863, that could have done, I don't think it could have won them the war, but it would have certainly helped them a lot. By the spring of 1865, no amount of money was going to help them. All right. That's a lot of background. Should we get started on the romantic plotline? That is what we're here to discuss. Yes, of course. That's all we're here for. Yes. The romance of National Treasure Book of Secrets. Speak for yourselves. I am here for the National Treasure 2 filibuster. Join me, listeners. I think we have think definitely we succeeded. Also, Rachel, we know you're here for the romance because we're talking about your celebrity crush. Um, he should be with me, not with Abigail. Abigail has no professional integrity, which is a thing that we will dig into here. I have a lot of thoughts. I would like to note that Custer was not looking for Cibola. Custer knew where the gold was, and that was the issue at Little Bighorn, that people were going onto the Sioux Reservation because they knew there was gold there and they were taking it. Yes, but was it Cibolin gold, or was it just normal gold? It was normal gold. (laughs) All right. Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five distinct points. So Will, or Rachel, excuse me, as guest, why don't you bring us to point one? Sure. Um, point one is that despite having seen Ben and Abigail get together at the end of National Treasure 1, we start with the discovery that Ben and Patrick are living together in Patrick's home that we are told to believe is in Washington, D.C., but is clearly in a Virginia suburb when their ancestor's name is tarnished. I can only imagine how difficult this must be for you. May I, Mr. Wilkinson? Welcome. I'll just see if this new page matches the Booth diary. This is an outrage. You're calling my grandfather a liar. Well, with all due respect, sir, now you're calling my great-great-granddaddy a liar. Yes, sir, I am. After getting, like, national news that he was good, that seemed to be the only press. The press was that he helped not even foil the Lincoln assassination, but he kind of helped somewhere. Yeah. uh, (laughs) They're basically relaying family lore as history about how uh, Thomas Gates, who, of course, was told about the secret that lay with Charlotte by the dying Charles Carroll. Thomas Gates then, like 30 years later, refused to help the Golden Circle find Cibola. And they're like, so he's a hero. And then Ed Harris is like, no, actually, he was involved in the Lincoln assassination. And all of this goes down at a presentation that Ben is giving. First of all, I want to know where this presentation is happening. Like, is this at a university? Is this at It looks like it's in the Jedi Temple. But also, I wrote down in my notes, I was very frustrated. Ben shows up to this big deal presentation. He's not even wearing a tie. He's wearing like a t-shirt with a sweater over the t-shirt with a blazer over the sweater. And I just feel like if you're giving a big deal academic presentation about your family, at least wear a collared shirt, if nothing else, if not a tie. But he's cool, Rachel. Isn't that what drew you to him? His swagger? His unwillingness I to said succumb I was to the drawn man. to him by his expansive knowledge of American history. So clearly his coolness had no factor in this. Is that why you went to Georgetown? You were just trying to sort of chase the BFG? 
yeah, I thought it was possible that if I went to Georgetown, I might be able to meet a guy who similarly liked to pontificate on American history. But unfortunately, I was in the School of Foreign Service where people just want to talk about the Israeli conflict all the time. I just wanted to remind us all that, like the three of us, Benjamin Franklin Gates went to Georgetown. I had no idea what you were talking about. I had forgotten. So yeah, so Ed Harris shows up as a bad guy. Um, Ed Harris is descended from Albert Pike, the only Confederate for whom there is a statue in Washington, D.C. He went to Virginia Military Institute, which had a lot of uh, disturbing revelations about racial insensitivity last year. And he was like a mercenary in the Congo in the 1990s. Sorry, Ed Harris's character did all of those things. Uh, he was a mercenary in the Congo in the 1990s, which means he's like the Ernie Hudson character from Congo, I think. Yeah, he he is a bad person, but is trying to recycle his family name. I know that we keep falling into tangents, but I do have an extremely important Ed Harris tangent. I have talked about how I told people that my celebrity crush was... I mean, Ben Gates, but I knew he was fictional, so I would just say Nicolas Cage, which at the time I did not realize how absurd it was. My aunt had a huge crush on Ed Harris, but not later in his life when he was a celebrity. He went to college like three or four blocks from my grandparents' house. And my grandparents hired Ed Harris and his brother and one of their friends one summer to like repaint their house and clean their gutters and wash their windows and stuff. And my aunt, who was probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 at the time, had a massive crush on Ed Harris because he would do all of this while not wearing a shirt. Wow. That does sound hot, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess this being point one of our romance, the point of it is that Ben is not living with Abigail. He's living with his dad in Virginia. Yes, and Ben's mom at this point is not in the picture. She is unmentioned in two movies. It was so kind far. of so far, yes. vaguely implied. I feel in the first movie, it's vaguely implied that she's dead. Yep. Yeah, I get that vibe. Serves us wrong. So yeah, that's really point one. Point two, because Ben and Patrick's ancestor's name has been tarnished, Ben decides he needs to see the diary page. This is the diary of John Wilkes Booth. Yes. That implicated him. That uh, Mitch Wilkinson. Ed Harris. Ed Harris, yes. Side note, it just occurred to me, Mitch Wilkinson, John Wilkes Booth. Do we think there's a secret lineage there? Um, That that is a national treasure level clue. (laughs) It is though. Like how do they never explore this? Um, But Mitch Wilkinson, Ed Harris's character proved that uh, Thomas Gates was part of the conspiracy to kill Lincoln by showing up with a diary page from John Wilkes Booth's diary. And Ben decides that the only way he can clear his ancestor's name is to find the hidden faded ink prints using infrared on this diary page. And in order to do that, all he needs to do is break into his own home and steal Abigail's badge so that he can go to her place of work because she's the documents curator or something like that and get the diary page and run all of these tests on it. So 
he breaks into his old home. While she's on a date with Ty Burrell. AKA Connor, the White House curator. I need to see the Booth Diary page. You saw the page yourself. There is no treasure map on it. No, it's a cyperlene to a treasure map. Did anyone spectral image the page? No need to. The ink writing on the page is clearly visible. It could have been erased or faded. You're the director of document conservation. You know all this. It's not up to me. It's not my department. That department reports to your department. Come on, Abigail, one look under infrared. You can have the Boston tea tables. I feel as if being in a relationship with someone who is known for stealing the Declaration of Independence <laughs> might lead some to question whether Abigail should be allowed to continue on in her role. You know what I just come to think of it? We know that they broke up. We know that there were a lot of emotional reasons why they broke up. But I wonder if her career trajectory also had something to do with it, where she said, you know, you can't keep being a treasure hunter if I'm going to have this job. And he said, well, I need to, you know. Do we he never dives into that, but it could be an interesting. Do we think he's done any major treasure hunts since the first movie? Why would you need to? He has so much money and he cleared his family name the thrill of the game mark but he was never really a treasure hunter for the treasure he just wanted to prove his family right and he already did that he was a treasure protector (laughs) no i think that he probably has not and i think that probably is part of the issue in the relationship that the spice he had been like this kind of adventurer and now he's like sitting around at home occasionally doing interviews and like writing up papers based on like family lore Basically, God's like, I always write about that one piece of family lore, so everyone has to listen to me about the other stuff. But yeah, so he breaks in to get the badge, runs into Abigail and Connor coming back from their date. Abigail immediately knows why he's there and what he's doing. And they get into a big fight until he offers her the Boston tea tables in exchange for her help. And this is where my professional integrity issues come in. She says... Okay, fine, let's go spend hours examining this document under a variety of different weird techniques and methods. Because on the personal side of our lives, you are giving me the thing I want. So I'm just going to go use my professional privilege to mess with a diary page that we could potentially even damage in doing all this research. Yeah, but she's also along for the thrill of the ride. We know Abigail. She is. I'm just saying she should be fired. Yeah, she should have been fired a while ago. Yeah, and so she keeps getting, like, roped into the adventure stuff. Like, when they go to first France, then London to find the next clue, John Voigt sends her to London as well. And so she meets up with Ben in Buckingham Palace. They have a fake fight that is also a real fight in order to get thrown in the holding cell there. And the fight is all about how, like, he doesn't ask her what she thinks about things because he just assumes that he already knows what she'll think about things, and that became unsustainable. He's just too smart! I gotta say, this movie really relies on photographs being much higher quality than they have any right to be. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, to you're an talking absurd about the traffic degree. camera that's, like, super high res? Yeah, why would they also, spend cell so phone cameras in that era? It's so good. It's so funny. It's so unexplained. I love it so much. Him holding up the plank of wood to the traffic camera killed me. I love the idea. Like, I think it is a genuinely good idea. It just shouldn't work. Right. Around this age, my dad 
sat me down at one point to talk to me about how when car chases like this happen for important historical items, this is all a movie and I should never try to do anything like that myself because real life is not a movie and I should just live. Not that I, you know, I very much respected authority as a child. I really followed the rules, but I was so into national treasure and Ben Gates antics that my dad just wanted to make sure that I knew that like I would not be able to successfully fight off big strong men and I probably would not find hidden treasure or like hidden clues as easily as he did so I should not try and that is all I was thinking about watching this car chase scene how my dad envisioned that I might someday try to engage in the same activities. <laughs> so he needed to set me straight at the young age of, I don't know, 12 or 13. All right. So does this bring us to point three? Is this point three or do we also have to talk about the the Easter egg roll? Wait, isn't that uh, after? The Easter egg roll is later. Yeah. Okay. I think that's after so we meet Emily. It is because we have gotten the plank that was in the British Resolute desk. Which was not a desk, and I read it. It was actually made into just a table that is just, like, around. I mean, to be fair, like, it does look like a table in the movie. Yeah, but in terms of the description of the Resolute desk, I saw that that's really only applied to the one used in the White House. And that the other furniture... There's also a third piece of furniture that was made from the planks, but that was given to a widow who was the woman who led the charge to find the ship, essentially. Oh, cool. So point three, Rachel. Yeah, they have found this plank that was in, I guess, the Resolute table in Buckingham Palace. And there are characters in it, are on it, that they recognize as pre-Columbian. Mesoamerican. Mesoamerican. And they say to Patrick, uh, we need to take it to her to translate for us. And he says, why do we have to get her involved? Flash to Ben's mom's office. You know, you used to like it. She fell in love with me on a that treasure hunt. That was not hunt, love. Dad. That was excitement, adrenaline, and tequila. Mom. And I was just trying to get course credit. Mom. Well, the treasure hunting paid off, in case you haven't read the papers lately. It had nothing to do with you. That was Ben. Ben found the treasure. You did nothing. And... My question, why do they have to bring Patrick, considering he has a good relationship with his mother? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. They could just leave him. But that wouldn't set up this nice romance between John Voight and Helen Mirren. Plus, I guess it is also his ancestor whose name has been... I understand that he's invested, but he just doesn't need to be there. He, like, asks to not go, and for some reason Ben's like, no, you have to come. And maybe this is just his maybe. plot to get his parents back together because he never got over their yeah, divorce that's what as I a child. Like, we have seen that he has, you know, a very complex way of thinking about the world. So maybe when he was like 10 or whatever and his parents, actually we need to get into the timing in a second. But whenever his parents got divorced, he just decided like someday I am going to go through the motions to find the lost city of Cibola so that my parents will get back together. But the timing that bothered me is at one point when they're on the way to go see Emily, they bring up that Patrick and Emily have not spoken to each other at all 
for 32 years. So how old is Ben? And also, like, clearly they have both been very involved in his life this whole time. And I'm just a little curious, how can they both have been involved in his life co-parenting but not have spoken to each other at all for 32 years? Unless he's, like, I don't know, in his 50s. So he was self-sufficient by that point. So I think he's in his 40s. And based on the prologue of the first movie... He's hanging out with Christopher Plummer and John Voight. I think that by that point, his parents are divorced. Um, we're basically told that. It is a good and question that I don't think Will will actually be able to come up with an answer. <laughs> I think that he's. I think that he's primarily raised by John Voight. Like, I don't think it is as much of a co-parenting situation as you are suggesting. And I think that maybe his like good relationship with Helen Mirren is more of like an adulthood thing. But if you left your husband for being obsessed with the treasure and questioning his mental acuity, why would you not take primary custody? And why would See, a judge a give him the primary custody in a Especially court battle? Especially because you are a professor, which means you have a more steady and reliable income stream. Look, we're asking the right questions here. <laughs> we're asking the questions the Wibberleys never asked. I feel like you are demanding that I make sense of National Treasure Book of Secrets, and I've been very clear throughout this that I cannot. Well, no, I'm not demanding that you make sense of it. You're the one who tried to volunteer an explanation here. I'm just trying to point out that there are some things here that do not make sense. So Helen Mirren and John Voight don't get along. Helen Mirren repeatedly blames any romance she had on like lust and tequila. And she translates the tablet and tells them that there's a missing half. Which is when they then go to the White House Easter egg roll, courtesy of Abigail's sort of boyfriend, Ty Burrell. And she like gets him to get them into the Oval Office and then flirts with him aggressively. There's a lot of like shibbying to like shake her boobs to distract him while Ben, like, pushes all the buttons on the desk to get the new plank. She's very willing to just, like, throw this man under the bus after she is already kind of getting to terms with reconciling with Ben. Yeah, because it turned out that all she needed to get him to listen was to be literally locked up with him. Yeah, it's a bad relationship, but we'll get into this later. And then, this is my favorite part, where he says, we have to kidnap the president. (laughs) Yes. So this is where they go to Mount Vernon, which may or may not have a national treasure tour. Yeah. And there are a bunch of cobwebs. He takes the president into the secret passage. There are all these cobwebs. We're supposed to think no one has been there for a long time. But first of all, apparently the Gates family has just been sitting on this hand-drawn map of Mount Vernon by George Washington for generations, just like waiting for it to come in handy, I guess. But well, they, th- they thought there was a clue on the back of it. To, uh, sure. uh, it had the legend of Curly's gold. And so they were working on that, but it turned out not to be true. Well, I mean, it does sound like something they would acquire to find the Templar treasure. Yeah. Well, he talks about how the um, enslaved woman had given it to an ancestor of his. But also, he's talking about, you know, I need to kidnap the president. Everyone in the room exclaims, what are you talking about? How are you going to do that? He says, Mount Vernon. And his father immediately goes, oh, sure, of course. (laughs) Naturally. Which makes me think that it's just a Gates family rite of passage over the summer when you turn 12 or something. You just go down to Mount Vernon and go into 
the uh, passageways from the spot. Like, they I have like to clearly think, have been there before. I like to think that they've kidnapped other people this way. That, like, anytime they need something <laughs> from someone, like, they're like, oh, gosh, you know, we really need, like, the directions to where Charlotte is buried in the Arctic. Like, oh, come on a trip with me to Mount Vernon. <laughs> oh, no, we're trapped! Uh, yeah. Wow. So really, the Gates family is just a menace to American society and has been for who knows how many generations. You can find out how many because after this movie came out, they started publishing a series of like middle grade novels. What? Called the Gates Family Mysteries. How did I not know about these? They published four of them. Two more were like solicited but never released. I must have these books. There are like two set around the war for independence. There is one in Jamestown looking for treasure. What? And there's a California gold rush one. I have to read these. So it's like the Gates family throughout history. I wish I had known about these two weeks ago, in which case I would have read them all and reported back on this episode, which is probably why you didn't tell me about them in advance. No, I found out about them this morning. Okay, I I will find these and I will report back to you all. <laughs> it's been a while since we had Rachel's reading corner. So anyway, they kidnap President Bruce Greenwood, who is never given a name. He's just called the president. And he tells them where to find the Book of Secrets, the titular book. Right. But Which oh, Riley had known about from, from his weird conspiracy book. I do love the touch that Riley's book does look like one of those crackpot books you find in the history section at Barnes & Noble. Like, you go into a major bookstore, the history section is like 30% good history done by professional historians. And then like 25% mediocre history history done by amateur historians. And then it's like 45%, like the the clear plurality is crackpot conspiracy history. And Riley's book looks like one of those, which is what it is. I love that no one has read Riley's book. Like, that is a running joke I that I really enjoy. Um, I do think it's important to note that the president is only willing to give Ben the information for how to get to the Book of Secrets after Ben plays up how he'll find this treasure and then the president will be able to present all of this treasure to the descendants of the people who left it there. And as I'm watching this, I'm like, those descendants are not getting a penny of the gold that is found. Like, there is no way. I feel like the U.S. government has a good track record (laughs) of respecting its commitments to give money to Native Americans. Like, you know, he brings this up later on. I forget where it is. I didn't write it down in my notes. But there's a point later on in the movie where Ben directly... Oh, because he... um, We'll get there. He later tells Mitch that Mitch can have all of the treasure to himself. And I'm like, excuse you. You promised this to the descendants of the... uh, Would it be the Lakota? Like... Unclear. Is it the Unclear. I don't know. I will (laughs) say... um, Ben may have been counting on the fact that Mitch Wilkinson should be arrested for endangering so many civilians and attempted murder for all of his antics in London. Like, the British government should clearly extradite him and he will lose access to the treasure. Um, he also kidnapped Emily at gunpoint, which, you know, we can get into now. Um, point number four, they go to Cibola. Which is buried underneath Mount Rushmore. Yes, and, um... The reason that Ben, Patrick, and Abigail are there is because when they sent Patrick back to Emily's office alone to get the translation of the plank that was in the Book of Secrets, Mitch has already showed up and has threatened her at gunpoint, like, don't give them a real translation. 
but she gives some sort of coded message that Ben is able to understand. They need to go to Mount Rushmore. And when they show up there, Mitch and his cronies are there with Emily being held at gunpoint because they're going to force her to help them find the treasure. I have an important question about the economics of Cibola. If there is enough gold to build a whole city, gold clearly is not rare. And the value of gold is in its rarity rather than its terrible ability as a building material, as a metal that you can scratch with your fingernail. So if gold is that plentiful, why would they feel the need to hide it in the first place? Well, they didn't hide it, remember? Calvin Coolidge hired... It's the thing that doesn't make sense, right? It's like, so Calvin Coolidge has the clues in the President's Book of Secrets, and it's like, oh, we need to hide this. And then pays to have Mount Rushmore built on top of it? Except the Black Hills were already there. Like, they didn't build a mountain on top of Cibola. Well, maybe this movie thinks Mount Rushmore was built stone by stone from the ground up. But Coolidge tries to destroy it. I think they say that... It was just much more, the entrance to Cibola was much more obvious, like it was easy to get to, and so Mm. Mount Rushmore was built to obstruct that. Also, speaking of Mount Rushmore, my sister is a geologist, and a couple of years ago tried to convince my entire family that there was a prevailing theory in the geological community that Mount Rushmore may have actually been naturally occurring. And she said that there were multiple academic articles on it. And none of us believed her because she was lying to us. But she went so far as to like Photoshop articles to make it look like people were publishing on the theory of a naturally occurring Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore was built in an era of photography. We have pictures of what the mountains look like before. Yeah. And she would say to us like, yes, I know that Mount Rushmore is man-made. It's just a theory. People are in asking the geological questions. Community, exactly. And we, you know, did not even believe that it was a theory, which was correct because she was lying to us. But she really wanted us to believe that there were people out there who thought that it was just the result of irregular erosion. Ben, no, wait, wait, no, that's probably a horrible trap. Tell them. It's a horrible trap. It would be a pity to come this far and not even try, and I wouldn't. So there's a lot of business in Cibola where they have to, like, go through some traps and stuff like that. But along the way, John Voight and Helen Mirren get separated. From the rest of the group. Yeah. Um, And so in their separation, they have this really intense talk where Patrick says to Emily, Did it ever occur to you that I did the things I did to impress you? And she says... No, you didn't. You did them because you wanted to do them, and she's which like, I loved. But then she's like, and someone had to stay and like take care of Ben. And we're like, but that circles back to our issue of like, why does it seem like John Voight is the only person doing it in the first movie? Because mom was supposed to be dead in the first movie. And then they realized this could be a plot point in the second movie. Yeah, I think the Wibberleys need some work on this. Did the Wibberleys write the first one? Uh, they have a, they definitely have a screenplay credit. Okay. Anyway, so Patrick and Emily are having their big heart to heart and rekindling the flame as Ben and Abigail are also rekindling the flame as they keep falling into literally falling at one point, multiple life threatening situations elsewhere in the path to Cibola. And they have some like nice moments of, you know, life threatening terror where they clearly care about each other. 
Yep. It basically takes us to point five, right? Yeah, they get yeah, out. They find Cibola, Mitch dies, and then Abigail asks Ben to move back in with her. Maybe you could come and move back in with me. No, you used the word so. So? So when you say so, it means you're angry. Sometimes. And then sometimes it doesn't. It's sort of like a puzzle. And you're so good at puzzles, I'm sure you'll figure it out. And Patrick accompanies Emily on her excavation of Cibola that she oversees. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. And O'Reilly, a girl, recognizes him and she read his book and maybe wants to go out with him. Hooray! All right. So, Rachel, after watching this movie, do you find the romances believable? So I do think it is possibly believable that after a time of being apart, some of the sharpness of your disagreements with a past partner could be kind of dulled and you could get caught up in the excitement with them. But I don't find it horribly believable overall, especially for Ben and Abigail, because I feel like the time frame is too short. We don't know exactly when they broke up, but it's he, he has moved out recently enough that he has not yet fi- found another place to live, despite Patrick bringing up a couple of different times that he would like Ben to move out. So I think the overall concept is not unbelievable, but in this specific context, it is because it has not been long enough for some of those edges to have dulled enough for them to be interested in getting back together. Yeah. I don't really have much to add. I I think this movie reconciles two relationships very easily. Yeah, I guess with Patrick and Emily, the problem is almost the inverse where they have been apart for so long that it seems like they wouldn't be able to just fall back into their relationship the way that they do. Right. I even get the impression that their relationship was not that long lived. So what are you thinking? On a scale of zero to 10, where zero means we believe none of it, and 10 means we believe all of it, where would you put National Treasure Book of Secrets? Probably around a three. I was going to say a little higher, like a four, just because I find romances rekindling to be a bit more believable quickly than new romances being formed, but it's still bad. (laughs) Sure. I think I am also winding up at a three, just because I do think it, like, it happens so quickly and i do think that yeah what rachel was saying where abigail and ben it was clearly a pretty recent breakup and so i just don't think it would have swung back the other way so quickly i did want to go look up um we gave national treasure one a one so national treasure book of secrets the more believable movie okay (laughs) do you think that ben and abigail or patrick and emily are dateable I mean, hard no to Ben. Sorry, Rachel. Um, Hard yes to Ben on behalf of Rachel. (laughs) I mean, frankly, watching this as an adult and having Ben in relationships, I would say now that I don't know that Ben is dateable and certainly I would not do well dating him. But when I was 11, I found uh, historical intellect much more attractive than emotional maturity, I guess. (laughs) Abigail, like, on paper seems like she should be, but she isn't. 
I think Abigail is not because she is so willing to bargain within the breakup, including compromising her professional integrity. But just like she, I think, is not. And frankly, also the fact that she's willing to get back with Ben so easily when another thing that I find a little bit unbelievable in this romance is that he just claims to have changed and he'll listen to her from now on. But we haven't really seen good evidence of that in this movie and whatever evidence we do see has only taken place over the course of like a week or two. So it concerns me that she is willing to go back to him so quickly. And she is also willing to let these contentious elements of her personal life dwarf every other aspect of her life, including her job, which we saw in the first movie is something that is very important to her. Uh, Patrick's also a no, and Emily, I guess, is probably the most able of the four. Do you think that either couple will stay together? No, I don't. I don't either. For the same reasons they broke up before. Patrick and Emily are old enough that Patrick might just die before they break up. I was going to say, I think Ben and Abigail are going to be back together for like two months max and then have an even more contentious breakup than the first one. Yes. I think Patrick and Emily are not going to get back in a relationship, like a formal dating relationship. But frankly, as, you know, two older people who both appear to be single, I could imagine them having a, like, occasional, infrequent, intimate, like, relationship where it's also kind of like, hi, nice to see you, but you're not going to be a big person day to day in my life. So Rachel's saying Patrick There's and Emily no will be attached. friends with benefits. <laughs> we cover I'd say both of them. Friendly acquaintances with benefits. <laughs> All right, but I can imagine that. Like that seems possible. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I would have to say President Bruce Greenwood because oh, number choice. one, he's more attractive than Ben Gates. He's hot. Number two. He appears to also be really into history. So he's like better than Ben Gates because he has a real job. <laughs> he's also more attractive, but he shares a similar interest in history. And number three, this shouldn't have any bearing because I'm talking about the president, not the actor, but I'm really, really, really into the movie 13 Days, which he is fantastic in. So that's his I, other president performance. Yeah, he's so good. I love it so much. Um, and so I could just make him do John F. Kennedy impressions for me all the time, and I think that would be fun. Will. Um, I mean there are just there are just so many options. Like there is the, <laughs> so the French characters. cop who has heard of Montesquieu. But you know, you ma- you just made a pretty strong case for President Bruce Greenwood. And I think because the only other option feels like the FBI agent who just exists to ask questions so that Harvey Keitel can deliver exposition. So I'm going to go with President Bruce Greenwood. I mean, I think that he clearly has problems and is kind of dumb, but Riley is attractive enough that we could maybe overcome these problems. The conspiracy stuff is a problem for me. I could not put up with that. Will, they all turn out to be true. So, I mean, I feel like you'd have to forgive him, because he's right. Yeah, but just every time I would start off with the premise, he's probably wrong. (laughs) 
My problem with Riley isn't the conspiracy stuff. It's that he's so insecure and has such an inferiority complex to Ben Gates. And I feel like it would be annoying to have to constantly be reassuring him like, no, honey, you're just as good as your best friend. Like, that would get pretty old. Yeah, but he's very cute. <laughs> and he has He is a... so cute. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Rachel, last question. Should the film National Treasure Book of Secrets be adapted into a stage musical? I'm gonna say no, because among other things, I think one of the best parts of this movie is all of the location work. And if it were a stage musical where, you know, it's just using sets, I don't know that we could get the full effect of the fact that water makes rocks darker. (laughs) It's true. Water makes rocks darker. (laughs) It's the key to But it has to be it has to be sunny. You have to have sunshine and the, water. Yes, it has to be sunny for the water to like the water will not make the rocks darker if it's cloudy. Yes, there of has course. To be sun. I would just love to like get a little like get a time machine. This is the only thing I would use it for. Just to like go back and like observe the Wibberleys on the day they just like couldn't crack the next clue of the story and they're like at a lake and they're like, oh, look, the the rocks that are in the water are darker. <laughs> um, I do not think this movie should be made into a musical, but I do think it should be adapted in the spirit of, there used to be an attraction at Disney World called the Indiana Jones, like, epic stunt show spectacular or whatever, where they would take sequences from Raiders and then reenact them to give you a sense in, like, a theme park setting where people are, like, sitting in an amphitheater of, like, here's kind of how we make stunts in movies. And I think there is something to, like, a theme park amphitheater show in the vein of National Treasure. I think there's something there. And they give you a clue, and you can find a treasure in the park if you crack the case. Yeah, so it, it could be, like, an amphitheater show, or it could be, like, like a VR, like, even, like, a Pokemon Go kind of thing. All right. I think you crack the case with Pokemon Go National Treasure. I don't know <laughs> yeah, if I can top idea. that. And I think that's about it for the Book of Secrets. It's time to close the book. All right. Rachel, thanks for coming on and and helping us work our way through this. We will reconvene for National Treasure 3. Next week, we will be discussing the 80s hit film Working Girl. And until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Last question. Rachel... What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Um, in honor of my young self, I feel like I have to say dazzle people with your ability to talk about U.S. history. The real dating advice that this movie has is ask your partner what they think and actually listen to them. And don't project your emotions onto their words without actually asking them about their emotions yeah a lot of relationship wisdom in the book of secrets actual good advice for once page 47 (laughs) life changing at this point we have only ever had as far as we know straight male presidents so is page 47 of the book of secrets how to have a successful marriage to a woman I think that page 47 it's is life-changing. a bunch of information about a mysterious figure named Jerry. But then since that movie came out, we've found Warren Harding's love letters. So we know that Jerry is his penis. <laughs>
Oh God. I That's a that's a history fact. That's I like a real to one for you. That one. Anyway, there you go. Warren Arden called his penis Jerry. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.